Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we're going to have someone that I think is going to teach us a thing or two about building and scaling companies, about pattern recognition as well, about raising money. So I think that uh, without uh, further ado, Andrew Dudam, welcome to the show today. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here. So, uh, so you went to Wharton, but born and raised where, Andrew? I was born and raised in San Francisco, right in the heart of the city. That's amazing. So why did you, how, how, but how, how was life there growing up just out of curiosity? You know, what? It, back, back when I was growing up, it was a small little village. You know, it, it was, it's a small place, seven miles by seven miles. And it was very family. Um, and it was very quaint and there was only a few good restaurants, if I remember correctly. And, and a lot of people in the neighborhoods I knew, they all knew each other. Um, and so it, it's a lot different from nowadays where, You've got IPOs and startups and all types of big things happening, but um, you know it's it's still a beautiful place to come back to and, and call home. Got it, and especially real estate prices going through the roof. That's right. It's it's not the it's not the most affordable place to live in the world. That's for sure. Got it. So then, why being there? You know, with all this environment, you have great universities. I mean, you decide to go to Wharton. I did. You know, so I grew up as a um, as a cellist. Interestingly enough, so I was a musician for the first fifteen or sixteen years of my life. I was touring Europe and and um, uh, the U.S. and playing at Carnegie Hall and and hundreds of of concerts and weddings. Um, and what I really wanted to do as I got to my later teens was to balance out kind of that creative part of my brain with more business fundamentals and traditional um, traditional finance and and strategy thinking. And so. I decided to go to Wharton at um, at eighteen undergrad um, and try to in instill some of those those basic principles that I that I knew I wanted to to have as I scaled my career. Got it. And would you say just out of curiosity, because one thing that I remember, um, I think it was Steve Jobs that said that some of his best employees were those that were musicians and that had that creativity. So how would you say that that creativity has served you as, as you were thinking about building and scaling companies? Yeah, I think it's, you know, I think it's really important, right? I think when, um, as an entrepreneur, one of the things that is our goal, it's our key objective is to figure out how to build something that has true outlier impact, right? That's something that, that can stand above the crowd, can, can stand out 
can resonate with people and humans on an emotional level in a very different way. And only if you achieve that <clears throat> can you actually build something that is known, right, is, is memorable. Um, and it's, it's harder and harder to do that nowadays with, you know, the ease and abilities for people to bring products and companies to market. So, you know, one of the things that I say is it's never been, um, it's never been easier to start a company. And for that reason, it's never been harder to build a brand, right, for those reasons. And so I think the people that have some type of unique background and brain, and that could be music, it could be art, it could be philosophy, it could be um, history, it could be a lot of things, um, I think uh, really position themselves well <clears throat> when balanced with the more traditional business experience to bring something to consumers and to build something that is really unique and something that has the potential to stand above all and stand out to, to, to people who are looking at it. So talking about entrepreneurship um, here, Andrew, in growing up in San Francisco, did you always know that you wanted to be an entrepreneur? Absolutely not. Um, <laughs> I knew that I didn't want to have a boss, I think was probably the primary thing I knew. Um, I come from a line of, of dudum men that um, have always been um, uh, self-employed. They've built their own businesses. Um, they built their own teams. I think there's a bit of stubbornness there. I think there's a bit of creativity there. Uh, I think there's uh, there's a bit of grit and desire to to kind of go out on one's one's own. And so my father, uh, my grandparents on both sides, uh, most of my uncles, my great grandfather, they, they all were um, they were all were founders and they were all kind of uh, business owners. And so I knew from an early age that 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 was likely the path that I wanted to pursue. Um, I hadn't yet identified that as being an entrepreneur. However, um, I think it was, it was not until maybe my, my late teens or early twenties when I was exposed to the startup mentality and the startup culture and the idea of building and bringing things to market, um, did, did my mentality really switch. Got it. And your first project was Lend for Peace and you do that. You did this one when you were at Wharton. So tell us about this project. Yeah, that you know that was the first company I ever founded. I was I was about nineteen at Wharton. Um, you know, at that point in the kind of early two thousands, there was an incredible trend happening around micro lending, um, and there was this um, group of ex PayPal executives that founded a company called Kiva.org, which to this day has done amazing work um, across the world. And essentially, the idea was to connect um, via a digital platform, an online platform connect lenders um, wherever they might be around the world um, with people that need money. And it's very small loans. These are loans in the $500 range, $2,000 range, maybe a few thousand dollars, predominantly women who are taking these loans. And it's for things like textile manufacturing, um, or maybe it's to increase um, supply of, of stock in their grocery store, um, or maybe it's to buy seeds and fertilizer for a farm, um, but essentially small loans that help these women and these families to build incredible businesses that they can that they can live on and that they can support their family on. And so, in two thousand and eight or two thousand nine or so, um, I co-founded Lend for Peace, which was a micro lending platform, which was exactly this, and it connected people like you and me in the United States and around the world to be able to go online, read the story of of men and women. Um, specifically in the Middle East, in the um, uh, Lebanon, the West Bank, Syria, et cetera, 
and to hear the things that they needed help with and the businesses they were running, the small little entrepreneurial shops they were starting up and how a $500 loan could help them scale that for their family. Um, and so it was an incredible business. Um, it, it still runs today and we've powered thousands of loans to, to women across the Middle East. Um, and it's, and it's just a really beautiful platform to be able to help educate cross nations, um, uh, you know, to understand people's problems, but also to then have financial incentives to help them invest in their future. Um, and so that was a really beautiful project and, and one of the, one of the first ones that I kicked off and ran. So then, so then I, one, one question that comes to, that comes to mind here is what is the approach as you're tackling, let's say, like a nonprofit like like this one, like Lend for Peace versus, let's say, like a for-profit business? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I've I've always felt that they should be run in very similar manners. Um, you know, one of the things that I think is difficult about the nonprofit space is that is that for many they are completely dependent or partially dependent on grant money or donations. And so when I built Lend for Peace, we tried really hard to build that business model in such a way that it was sustainable and that it was scalable and so that we could we could truly have very large impact and not be dependent on any one um, capital source or any one grant or a set of donations. And I think that's really simple, uh, similar to how I think about building companies today for profit businesses, which is you want to be able to stand on your own. You don't want to have dependencies that are, are serious to your distribution. You don't want to have dependencies that are core to your IP that are not owned in-house. Um, you don't want to have teams that are core to your execution that are not with you or at least part of your family. Um, and so it's a very similar idea, which is try your best to build the business in a way that can scale in a sustainable way, but also in a way that is not dependent on, on any one or any group of individuals. And and the, and this business, did you started it with the um, with with some classmates from Wharton, or what was the founding team? I did. I, I founded it with um, a, a fellow classmate from Wharton who was exceptionally passionate about this space as well, um, and we we built it together. Got it. And how big is it today, the business? Today, it scales um, quite quite nicely. We ended up partnering with Kiva.org, which is the largest micro-lending platform in the country today. Um, and so that platform helps us power these thousands of loans. Um, and you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars are, are invested on the platform that then get some type of return and are, and are returned to you as the lender. Um, and in doing so, you're helping a lot of people around the world. Cool. Really cool. And so TalkBox. So at what point do you decide, hey, you know, this is really cool, the nonprofit, but but I want to explore, you know, what, what else is out there? You know, like what was that thought process and, and how did you land on TalkBox? Because I believe this was a portfolio company of Sequoia. So this probably gave you the insight as to how a super high growth business is built and, and, and how it's scaled. That's right. So, you know, while I was um, building Lend for Peace and I was at Wharton, um, you know, one of the things that I noticed was that I was spending a lot of time, if not more time, um, hanging out with engineers and hanging out with designers and prototyping businesses and trying to get them to, to skip class, to build things with me. And I was 
spending way more time doing that than actually going to class. Um, and so at, after my second year at Wharton, I decided to, to leave, um, which I can say was a very hard decision. And, you know, parents were very concerned at the time. Um, and I came back to San Francisco and I came back to join um, what you said is Talkbox, which was a very early consumer video company that uh, Sequoia Capital had put about $5 million into. Um, and the business um, was really exciting. It was, it was off the cuff and, and heels of uh, YouTube, which Rulof Butha had, had funded at Sequoia. Um, and Talkbox was the next investment, which was a live video platform to power companies uh, like YouTube. Um, and so uh, I joined at around um, 20 years old or 19 years old. Um, and I and I ran product for that company for about four years. And that's where I really, for the first time, um, kind of uh, got gritty and hit my head against the wall of learning how to build something, really struggling, um, working with incredible operators, learning how they did it, how they struggled through the process, bringing things to market and iterating and using analytics to improve those dynamics. Um, and so it's really where I got a lot of my Silicon Valley technology background um, experience that that's been kind of the foundation of of what I've done since then. So talking about product and and you know one thing that definitely is everything for startups and that is product market fit. How do you define product market fit? Product market fit to me is when um, despite whatever you might be doing to hindrance your success or hinder your success consumers are still trying to get the product. Um, and I've seen it you know, with some of the best companies where consumers are willing to jump through all types of hoops. You know, Maybe they have to register three times because the website is not compatible on you know, Internet Explorer or Chrome, or they're calling you to try to figure out where their order is because they didn't get the shipping you know, notification or they didn't get the email confirmation. Um, you know, all of those... All of those um, experiences, when you see consumers fighting to get access to what you are selling or what you are offering, to me, that's when you've had product market fit. And most of the time, it's happening despite yourself, which means you know the company might not be perfectly polished, or there's tons of roadblocks or barriers in the way of a consumer journey getting access to the thing that they need. Um, but when you have that happening, when you have that dynamic of people fighting for access and fighting to to learn more, that's when you know you've you found something that's really special. And from a product perspective, what was your biggest lesson with Talkbox? Oh, that's a great question. Um, you know, I think I think at Talkbox, one of my biggest core learnings was to use data and analytics to help inform decision making. Um, you know, I remember in those kind of early uh, pivotal years. I was partnered up with an incredible VP of analytics who I still know today, you know, decade plus later. Um, and, and he and I would look at retention and we'd look at cohorts and we'd look at AB tests. Um, and we'd use all that data as much as we could along with talking to these consumers to be able to recommend what we felt was the right next step. Um, and that was the first time I think I really understood how you could um, run tests and set up situations to inform product decision making 
And today, that's something that I think is exceptionally accepted and exceptionally widespread and is how many of the best technology companies run. But for me, that was the first time that I really was exposed to that type of thinking. Got it. And then for the, the company was acquired by Telefonica, obviously a company that I know well, being being Spanish myself, Andrew. And and I wanted to ask you here, like, what was that process of of all of a sudden the company is acquired? You know, now you're able to not only uh, I would say master what product what products look like in in hyper growth companies, but also understand what the full cycle of a of a startup is uh, like as well. No? So so I guess what was that process for you of of seeing, hey, you know, like this is actually how companies get bought. Yeah, it's, it was a fascinating experience, um, and it was the first one that I'd had, and so I was I went in completely eyes wide open. Um, you know, it, it's it's so fascinating because on one hand, there's nothing that's ever more exciting than when your company is getting bought. Um, you know, you have the executive teams from Spain, Telefonica is one of the largest telcos in the world, flying into your office and they're meeting you and hugging you and their champagne, and it's exciting. Um, and so, you know, in a lot of ways, you feel like you've succeeded, right? In a lot of startup mentality and startup stories, selling a company is is an incredible milestone, and it's one very few people experience, um, and it's and it's sought after as an end goal, and 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 in many ways, it, it is for a lot of companies. Um, but it's also exceptionally bittersweet, right? I think you then um, have to experience the friction of blending a 40 or 50 person company into a 280,000 person telco, right? A global telecommunications giant. And, um, you know, processes and mechanisms that you had in a 40 to 50 person team of how to build product and how to get it out to market and how to do it quickly, all of a sudden needs to be evaluated at a much different scale, right? Now there's um, uh, multi-year roadmaps and there's capital allocation budgets and there's um, you know things that you need to go through when you're dealing with a company of that of that magnitude, and so in a lot of ways, um, you know all acquisitions and and I've gone through a few that I've been lucky to go through at this point, and so have many of my closest friends. <clears throat> I think for the most part they're bittersweet. You know you're incredibly excited, you're incredibly proud, um, you're you, you feel like you've accomplished something, and in a lot of ways on the flip side. Um, you also know that there's a lot of work now to do, right? There's a lot of cultural blending that needs to take place in a lot of ways. Um, that early team that was so spirited and full of love that knew each other is now going to be um, blended into a much larger company and into much bigger processes. Um, and sometimes that's very difficult. Um, and so with every good comes comes its um, comes its challenges. And so I think at this point, when I think of building companies, you know, acquisitions um, are one outcome, but they're not necessarily always the outcome that is the right outcome for the company. In some situations, it's to keep the business completely independent, um, or to take it public, or or other other paths such as that. And I guess as um as an employee, having gone through that, uh, you know, I'm sure that it gave you a lot of perspective on you know how people view things from what lenses, like either as the founder or you know, in this case, you were the employee. So what was that? You know. Perhaps something that you learned and, and maybe for the people that are listening, you know, maybe like a tip that you can give them. If you go through an acquisition, you should absolutely do this or keep this in mind. You know, the the one point of advice that I give all friends who are going through this process is to be patient and to be open minded <clears throat> to whatever the outcome might be. 
Um, and I say that because acquisitions are, are, are big, right? They involve the merging of cultures, the merging of companies, the merging of processes, a lot of different things like that. And it takes time. It realistically takes time to figure out whether or not those entities are going to be able to, to work together well and how they're going to find synergies. And so my recommendation to people going through that process, both founders as well as employees, is to be patient. See, see how it, see how it um, unfolds and be part of that process of making it successful. Um, but, but I think it, it often does take time. And so people need to understand that and be willing to, to experience the ups and downs until you can make it and make it work in a lot of situations. And then the, um, right after this, you started <laughs> Atomic. So, uh, Atomic, one of the uh, big milestones, I would say in your professional career, no? So, so how did you come across, you know, this idea and, and tell us how, how did it happen? Yeah. So I, uh, Atomic is a phenomenal organization. It's probably one of um, the 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 things I'm most proud of in my career. Um, and it's an organization I co-founded with a couple of um, close friends from Wharton as well, who had also built companies and sold them um, to, to large companies. And so we had gone through the process of entrepreneurship and, and acquisition um, kind of during the same period. And the idea for Atomic was to bring together the best operators, the best builders of, of technology and startups that we could find and couple them with the best investors that we could find. Um, and, you know, one of the things that, that as an entrepreneur you experience and one of the things I experienced with TalkBox and, and our board there, which included incredible investors from Sequoia, Bain Capital, um, Kevin Hartz, who's one of the, the best operators, co-founder of Eventbrite and Zoom, um, is that incredible investors have incredible pattern recognition. They've they've gone through the process of funding, helping, advising, um, restructuring, uh, hiring for startups, and they've done it dozens and dozens and dozens of times. And so when you can bring together operators that have built companies before and scaled them, that have done that multiple times, and couple them and put them in the same room as investors who have funded and advised um, and mentored companies dozens and dozens of times, the, the thesis was you should be able to build a much better system for bringing companies to market in ways that are more efficient, um, less capital intensive, uh, are more meaningful, can scale quicker, um, have have a higher chance of being enduring businesses, and be able to do that on a reproducible manner um, at a statistical rate that's much much higher than doing it outside of that ecosystem. <clears throat> and so it, it, it was really the idea of, can we build a company that can more efficiently build bigger companies? Um, and that that's really been the, the vision for Atomic, and it's, and it's been an incredible six and seven years of, of, of trying to make that um, a success. So a company builder, because, I mean, when you guys started this in, in 2013, I mean, the, the concept, I mean, even today, there's a lot of people that don't get the venture builder model, right? So, so how do you define, what, what, what is it really like, a venture builder? Oh, it's chaos. <laughs> um, venture builders are um, essentially... Uh, the early periods when a company is going from that phase of idea to pen on paper, to prototype, 
to talking to a customer, those crazy um, those crazy months of zero to one that Peter Thiel mentions all the time, um, who is an, an, actually one of the early investors in Atomic, you're going through that that really special, beautiful, magical creation phase, and you're doing it over and over and over and over again. Um, and so, you know, what is it? What is it like? It's it's crazy, right? You're you're experimenting. You're using data. Um, you're, you're brainstorming. It's a very open, um, and energizing and creative part of the life cycle of a company. It's usually very, very small teams, you know, three, four person teams that are doing these prototypes and moving fast and learning. Um, and, uh, and it's a very, um, it's a very creative point, right? You're testing ideas and validating them. You're throwing out many of them that are proving not to work. Um, but it's, it's to me, one of the most special and enjoyable parts of that that experience and so um we get the privilege at atomic of being able to do that uh, 10 15 times per year um and there's constantly evolution happening and so we've been able to essentially uh, put lightning in a bottle right and and capture that creativity and energy of that early phase and be able to do it over and over and over again with the purposes of getting better at it and and identifying patterns um, to hopefully be able to improve the next time we build a company. And and obviously, I mean, you guys, I mean, you were alluding to this. Peter Thiel, Mark Andreessen, I mean, you guys raised like $200 million to invest in in those ideas and basically build a team and then let them fly. One of the things that I wanted to ask you here, Andrew, is how do you know or at what point do you know that an idea has legs? You know, it comes back to what I was saying about product market fit. When you... When you have people, regular people, normal people, not your friends, not your family, not people in the office, but when you have people you don't know, who you've never interacted with, who come across your idea and come across um, a web page or a product or they hear about it, and then they're pushing and fighting to learn about it and get access to it and, and take out their credit card and pay for it. That's when you know you have something special, um, and and we've seen this happen over and over and over again, um, where where there's a, a real difference between you know that period where you're asking friends, hey, what do you think about this? Would you buy it? Would you consider it? Or you're sending it out to your family, and they're like, yeah, yeah, I'll buy it. You know, that's very different, right? Your mom is always going to want to buy whatever you're building. Your best friend is always going to tell you that what you're building is a great idea. And those are are beautiful people that support you and help you and push you along. But that is not product market fit. Product market fit is when other people, when people you don't know are fighting to get access to it. Um, And that's when you really know you've got something and you've hit on something that that is a spark. Got it. And one thing that um, that, that also I want to ask you here as a follow-up is, I mean, you, you guys have been involved with about 12 companies, which is remarkable. So, I mean, you've seen a lot. So in terms of pattern recognition, like what would you say are like the, let's say, top three ingredients that really give that potential of success to, um, to an early stage company? So the top three patterns that, that, that essentially identify that you feel like there's something here. Is that right? Correct. Yeah, that's a great one. Um, you know, I think the first is always uh, creative, right? It's a very emotional aspect when when it's an idea that you really can't stop thinking about, and it's because the space and the market that's um, that you're you're talking about entering is so big and so deep that there's really 
uh, endless opportunities for creativity. That's one of, I think, the really important parts of a special idea is the market is really massive, right? It's, it's big. And for that reason, you as a creative and business thinker, keep thinking about it. You know, it's not a cut and dry business where you're buying something or selling it. There's opportunity to expand and to grow. And I think that's one of the, the, the parts of um, uh, parts of identifying a business in a space that, that is really important to something that can be big. So I think that would be the first one. The second, when it comes to you know pattern recognition, is something that is um, something that is a, a story that emotionally is very easy to understand. You know, I think the best companies um, that have been built when you when you look through history and and you look at the businesses today are ones that feel very obvious. They're ones that that seem to make extreme sense. It's it's not extraordinarily complex. Um, in in idea, it's not extraordinarily complex in how it works. Um, it, it's something that, as a human, you can tell somebody and they get it. Um, and I found that over time, the ability to share the story of the company and the reason for why it exists and why that's important, and being able to do that really easily, where other people look at you and say, "Oh, yeah, that makes so much sense." You know, that narrative is exceptionally important. Um, because that's the narrative that that grows organically, right? That's the storyline that people then tell their friends or they tell their family or they tell people at work as to why they're using the service or company or, or hey, did you hear about this? It's the clip that is viral, right? And, and so that needs to be exceptionally human. It needs to be something that people can digest very easily. Um, it needs to be something people can resonate and tell, you know, other others, um, but I think the best ideas, the best companies that I've seen, you can articulate that you know, very, very quickly and in an emotional way that people really understand. So I would say that would be the second. Um, and the third, I think, is more quantitative, right? I think, um, you know, when you, again, can see the way in which a company is going to grow and you can actually quantify that growth. Um, I think it's something that is really special. And it's something we spend a lot of time at Atomic on, which is, um, you know, how are we going to bring this product? How are we going to bring this business to market? What are the ways that consumers or buyers are going to hear about this? What are the ways that they're going to find out and want to buy it? Um, and we, we talk a lot about this being our distribution channels, our growth strategy. Um, and I think one of the things we spend a lot of time on is, is there a proprietary growth strategy? And what I mean by that is, is there a way to bring this product to market in a way that nobody else could have access to? And maybe it's because you know some type of secret or some type of tidbit of information as to you know a, a channel that could scale. Or maybe it's you've tested um, sales and sales works beautifully in a market that nobody's even thinking about. Um, but what is the quantitative way what is the way you can test um, to really understand how you're going to bring it to market in a very efficient manner? And the reason I think that's re really important is I have a, a core belief after having built and prototyped you know, dozens of companies that just because you build an amazing product, just because you build an amazing brand or company doesn't guarantee that it will grow. Um, it doesn't guarantee that it will win. Um, there's a, there's incredible, amazing brands and stories and products out there that are beautiful um, that never never see mass scale, and it's because um, it, it hasn't quite figured out a way to scale. 
It hasn't figured out a proprietary distribution channel or a growth channel. And so we spend a lot of time at Atomic and I spend a lot of time with, with, um, with hims and hers and with other companies of, of not only making sure it's a beautiful product, but spending a lot of time on understanding what is the proprietary distribution channel that's going to help get this product to millions and millions of people. Got it. And and obviously, you know, we we alluded to this. I mean, you guys have done twelve companies, and Hims and Hers is the the second company where you are really an operator. The first one is uh, Everco, where you know you kind of like uh, were the executive, and then you stepped it up to the board. But I want to uh, really hone in now on the Hims and Hers uh, operation, which is now your the, the most recent one, the most recent one that you are you know at and. And before we go into that, I mean, you guys for Atomic as a whole, the company's raised the five hundred million, five hundred to six hundred million. Is that right? Yeah, maybe across all of Atomic, um, its portfolio companies, it's it's somewhere around there. It's quite a large number. Really amazing. So let's talk about Hims and Hers. So so how did you guys really come up with this, and and you know what were some of the early days like? Yeah, you know the early days were a, a really interesting mix of um, creative and business insights. You know, so from a from an emotional creative standpoint, the idea of hims and hers has, has been something that that I and, and our team have been thinking about for a long time. And and it's this idea that um people, normal people, consumers should have a more efficient, easier way to get access to stuff that makes them feel great. Um, you know, as a as a man um in my teens and twenties, there was things that I was concerned about. Maybe it was hair loss, it was acne, it was sleep whatever it might've been. And, and one of the things that was very obvious was that men didn't discuss, they didn't talk with each other about these issues. Um, we didn't, um, openly brainstorm of ways to find solutions. What we would do is open up Google. We'd open up incognito browser mode. We'd type a search, you know, is it normal for X to happen? You'd find a result. Um, three or four clicks later, you'd realize you're going to die and you shut the computer, right? You know, it's a very scary experience. And so there was this really um, human and, and, and creative and, and emotional part of hims and hers, which was just people need better access to care. The existing system, the existing hospital healthcare system is, is expensive. It's hard to access. It takes weeks. You have to take time off of work. It's exceptionally uncomfortable you know, to talk about really um, stigmatized issues in person and in public. And so there really should be a brand that can that can make that easy, that can make that um, normal, that can can make it affordable, that can make it accessible for you to invest in being healthy. And that could mean things for sleep. It could mean things for self-esteem. It could mean things for anxiety. It could mean things for immunity, hair loss, sexual wellness, dermatology, acne, birth control. I mean, it could mean a lot of stuff, but it's all about just a very human desire to want to take control of your health and wellness and to be able to buy things and get access to things that make you feel better and make you feel good. So I think that was something that, that I was really passionate about and the team was exceptionally passionate about. Um, and then what we tried to do is, you know, could we mirror that passion, that creativity with a business case? Like was, was there really a, 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 a analytical and financial foundation to build a business like him's and hers? Like, was there actually a model? You know, I went to Wharton, I left after two years, and I always make the joke that I I, I know enough to be to be dangerous, but but um, not enough to be an expert. And so I know enough to know that you should be able to build a really great business at the core of of what you're trying to solve. And with hims and hers, 
um, it became very clear that that there was an incredible business opportunity. Um, and so, it was a few things. Oh, go for it, please. I don't know. Please, up to you. Go ahead. Yeah. So there's a few things. One, um, you know, there were laws in the United States that were changing. It was this opportunity to bring medicine via the internet. Um, and these are telemedicine laws. And so for the first time, just a couple of years ago, states passed these laws, which let us go online, talk to a doctor and get medicine. And so you could remove all types of friction points like going to a doctor. And, and that was huge. And then there were other things that were changing like patents. So for example, things like Viagra, you know, very famous sexual wellness medication. Viagra used to cost um, $65 per pill when it was on patent. And then last year it went off patent, which allows Hims to sell it generic for $2 per pill. And this was happening dozens of times with dozens of medicines. And so, you know, the opportunity to remove price um, and bring that down to affordable level and then to be able to bring it to market from your computer and, and buy it from your phone, all of those things really brought a, a really powerful business case to the table. So then, so then for you guys, I mean, obviously the, um, the just building a company is, is quite a... Um... Is quite a hustle, right? I mean, there's uh, so many fires and fronts that, that you have to deal with. So did you find that perhaps like some of the regulatory framework and navigating all of that, it's also kind of like an added uh, challenge? Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I think, um, you know, every great business that I've seen be built has some type of part of the business that requires the entrepreneur to hit their head on the wall hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times. Um, and I say that because I think the best businesses have moats. And in a lot of those moats, um, you know, those moats are simply um, the, the entrepreneur and the team's willingness to endure pain for a certain amount of time to figure something out. And that in and of itself can be an incredible moat. And so when I was looking at hims and hers and the regulatory um, aspects, you know, some of the things that I looked at was companies like Lyft and companies like Uber that have had to push the regulation to make what they want and what consumers need, which is great access to, to, to ride sharing, um, you know, legal in different states where it's currently not. And so they endured this pain of pushing on behalf of the consumer and now have been able to build an incredible market, an incredible business. Um, I think of companies like Airbnb, right, which um, uh, you know, in many states and many counties and many cities was something they had to push to make, you know, local counties and mayors and regulators comfortable with the idea of, of living and co-living and, and all of these short-term rentals. But they pushed on behalf of the consumer because they knew consumers wanted it and it'd be better for people. And so I think with hims and hers, it's the same thing. You know, people need access to great care. They, they need access in the form factors that they are used to using, like their phone and like their computer. And they need access on their time um, when, it, when they're free. And they need access in prices that are affordable. And so all of these are things that at Hims and Hers, we've had to push. And we've had to push over and over and over again. And we're going to continue to have to push on behalf of the consumer. But, but it's very clear that it's that it's right. It's very clear it's the future, and it's very clear it'll be better for all people once we're done. And and one of the things that I wanted to ask you as well is every morning going to to work, I remember seeing you guys in the subway. 
I mean, it was so unbelievable. It was like I needed to look somewhere, and everywhere I was looking in the there inside the subway, I, I saw him and hers. So, like, really great marketing that you guys have done. So, what have been some of the growth hacks that you've seen? You know, that really worked out in the beginning. Uh, that's a great question. Uh, you know, the first thing I would say is I probably can't tell you a single growth hack because I I don't really think about them as growth hacks. You know, I think when I think of growth hacks, I think of things that are um, short term, you know, uh, maybe not scalable. And, and that's really not how we think about it at hymns and hers. And the way we think about it is more is what are channels that, that catch people's attention in ways that are unique. And so something that we think about a lot is this difference between creating inventory versus buying inventory. So what I mean by that is buying advertisements on Facebook and Instagram is a very easy thing to do. And it's a very efficient thing to do. You can spend some money, all of a sudden your company has advertisements and you're selling product. Here's one of the risks. It's so easy to do that everybody else can do it. And so when I said it's never been easier to start a company, it's because channels like Facebook exist to get your message out to consumers. And and it's true, it's never been easier. The problem with it is that because it's so easy, it's not differentiated, which means anybody can do it and and it's not proprietary to you and the problem with that is over time those costs get expensive and they're not in your control and so what we think about at hims is um, instead of buying inventory like buying Facebook ads we think about creating inventory so what are places where men and women are spending 20 seconds or 30 seconds not distracted by, um, other people, they're not distracted by work. They're in an environment where you know they have a couple of seconds to look on a wall or look in front of them and evaluate something. And we try to go and build marketing campaigns and advertising campaigns in those places. And ideally, we build them um, with inventory that doesn't exist. So we go to you know these subways and we say, hey, we want to put something right there. And you've never sold any advertisement there, but we're going to buy it from you. Um, or we're going to go to gym locker rooms and we're going to take over gym locker rooms. Or we're going to go in front of urinals. You know, there are hundreds of thousands of urinals in the United States and men are staring right in front of the urinal for 20 seconds as they're using <laughs> We're going to go and put an advertisement right there because they're going to be staring at it. They're not going to look side to side because they're really focused on what they're doing. But we're going to put a billboard right in front of them. Um, and so we, we spend a lot of time thinking about that concept of creating inventory and also where is our consumer, where is our guy, where is our girl spending 20 or 30 seconds um, free of distraction and then let's go get some some amazing branding and amazing marketing right then and there. That's amazing. So how, how um, and by the way, I agree with this mentality. I think that the Facebook say ads and all of this, everyone is doing it. So it, there's there has to be a way that is sustainable to build a business. Otherwise, it's um, it's not going to be a um, a good outcome potentially. So I wanted to ask you here, uh, Andrew, how how big is the business today, Hims and hers? The business is quite large. <laughs> um, we've only been around for uh, you know a little bit over a year. Um, you know, we did a million in sales in the first week of the business's operation. Um, and that was, <clears throat> I believe, the smallest week we've ever had in sales to date. So, it, you know, every month the acceleration continues to to grow. 
Um, and, and it's just been, it's just been unbelievable. You know, I think we really hit an emotional chord of helping people get access to things they need and things that make them feel great and doing it in a way that's beautiful and normalized and destigmatized and easy and affordable. Um, and so, you know, the team now is about, uh, 50 to 60 people, but, you know, from a business standpoint, I would say we, we've built you know, one of, if not the fastest growing kind of consumer brands from a revenue standpoint um, in the last decade or two. And and you guys have also raised uh, some money. So how much capital did you guys raise today? We have. We've raised, we've raised a little over $200 million in the last uh, year or so. And also great investors, Redpoint, Founders Fund, Thrive, I mean, amazing people. So so one thing that I want to ask you here is in a world where Hims and Hers, the vision is fully realized, what does that world look like, Andrew? Yeah, you know, you know, we are building Hims and Hers in a manner to be enduring brands that people love, um, you know, household names that that people across the country, no matter their background, no matter their socioeconomic uh, status or their ethnicity or their sexuality, they're brands that people <clears throat> use and engage with on a daily basis to feel better, to get access to things that make them feel great. Um, and so, you know, when we're successful and, 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 and hopefully, you know, this continues to grow in the coming years, I mean, what we're all pushing for is to build a trusted relationship that, that can help people get access to the things that, that are good for them um, and help people have a more um, interconnected and ongoing relationship with their wellness and with their health. And so, you know, if we, if we can pull that off, I think what you end up having is a population in the United States, um, a next generation of people in their 20s and 30s um, that, are, that are very engaged with their health and wellness. And they're very aware of how they feel, and they're very aware of the things that make them feel better, um, and and they're very educated about those things, and they're taking action and being proactive about it. And, you know, I think that timing is everything when you're building something, and, and without a doubt, I mean, we've been living in a world where it was all about, hey, you get ill, and then you get cured by the doctor. But the problem is that doctors are not trained to really prevent, and I think that the um, that the fact that you guys are really riding in this timing where people are more conscious about taking care of themselves and, and preventing potential uh, catastrophic um, uh, situations is just, is just fantastic. So one question, Andrew, that I typically ask the, um, the guests that we have on the show is knowing what you know now. I mean, you've been you know, around the blog a few times uh, and you've seen everything. Uh, we've been talking a lot about pattern recognition and things like that. So if you had the opportunity to go back and have a conversation with your younger self, and give yourself one piece of business advice before launching a business, what would that be and why? The one piece of advice I would say is to surround yourself with people that are smarter than you. Um, it's something that I try very desperately to do today and have in the last few years, and, and I will continue to try to do in the future. Um, I think somebody once told me, your intelligence is the average of the five people you spend the most time with. And so when building a company, it is critical to identify areas that, that um, you need to learn and to surround yourself with people who are excellent and continue to do that. Even if you're a public CEO, um, run a multi-billion dollar company, just continue to be curious and continue to surround yourself with people that are better than you. I love it. And for the folks that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi, Andrew? 
you know what? You could shoot me an email. It's probably pretty easy to figure out that. It's all over the internet. You can shoot me a, a tweet um, and I'll get right back to you. But I'm, I'm available on a lot of channels to, to help however I can. Amazing. Well, Andrew, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. Thank you. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.